the Making Sense of Life podcast number 57. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome again to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. Thank you for joining us uh, today as we continue our conversation with Patrick Sukdeo. If you, if you haven't listened to, to podcast number 56, the one prior to this, uh, then let me just give you a short summary. Patrick is the director of the Institute for the Study of Islam and Christianity, as well as international director of Barnabas Fund, that is an international interdenominational Christian agency that supports Christians who face discrimination and persecution because of their faith. What's a very little, little known fact is that, is that Christians are the most persecuted um, religious group in the world. And you'd never really, you'd never know that if you uh, if you listened or watched the, the mainstream media, and yet that is what the statistics uh, bear out. On our last podcast, we we've been basically getting to know Patrick and his background. Uh, to give you that in summary, Patrick was born in British Guyana, and was brought up in a mixture of a Muslim and Hindu family. He 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 left to come to to the UK in 1959, and coming to the UK with his family suffered an enormous amount of racism and ostracization by, by by the British people and yet it was the love that they had within the family that really kept kept them together and as he says if you listen to the podcast it's what kept as it were kept them very much sane and, and, and able to just keep moving forward and yet in spite of all that amazingly uh, in 1964 uh, Patrick actually himself came to faith in Christ and accepted Jesus as his own Lord and Saviour, which was, as it were, a huge tragedy for his parents and led to him leaving home and basically living as a vagrant uh, on the streets of London. Sadly as well, he was very much ignored and uh, ostracised by, by the host British Christian community and was not taken in by them at all. And it was only, he was, t he was accepted into London Bible College to, to study and work there. Uh, that he eventually began to find his feet. And we were listening again how that's where he met his wife, Rosemary, um, who's from New Zealand. But Patrick, let's, let's carry on the conversation and, 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 and those early years, as it were, because it, it is quite striking hearing that background to the sense of how God has led you, even though you said on the last podcast that you don't trust very much in terms of a plan of God, but, but trusting each day in God. But let's, let's carry on the conversation from there. Oh. In Christian ministry now with the Evangelical Alliance, and um, just to mention, the Evangelical Alliance is is an umbrella body that brings together people, yes. what well, brings together churches of different denominations right. and backgrounds yeah. under the 
as you were under the umbrella of, of faith in Christ and what he's done yes. for us on the cross. And then there was the missionary arm, the Evangelical Missionary Alliance. So my work now is to travel across Great Britain to try to look at reconciliation in the black churches. Yes. A placement of white missionaries were returning from Asia into Muslim yes. areas. And yes, because we're remembering, because in the 1960s, 1970s, and that would include me, my parents came over from, from India in 1968. Yeah. And the face of, of London and the UK is changing yes. with people coming over yeah. from the colonies, yeah. from the former colonies, I should say, yeah. to then take up jobs that yeah. nobody else wanted to take exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah. So now to evangelize. And so you so you got this 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 role of um, being a bridge between the local white church yes. and the communities that are here. Yes. It's just yes. probably worth it. Any although you trained as a civil engineer, yes, trained. I, I started in engineering. Yes. Because I had five O, o levels, so it had to be an apprenticeship. It couldn't be a university. Yes. But after a year or so, I moved to architecture to the Greater London Council to be an apprentice there. Yes. And then decided I'd leave and then going to Christian ministry, because that was where my passion, my heart was. Yes. And so in going around the country, I found really that there was alienation between a Christianity that was very protective of its own and how it would engage with the foreigner. Uh, many churches, brethren churches, one church in Birmingham, simply said to the new immigrant black community that had been brethren in the Caribbean, look, we will leave and we give you the church. The Methodists did the same. The Anglicans were just as bad, in fact, perhaps worse. And so it was an environment of major polarization. And you have to remember Yes, because these denominations are all very separate. They, they, we, we take for granted now there's much yeah. better relationships yeah. between churches yeah and different denominations yeah. than they were at that time. There was like a sort of, yeah, an, an apartheid Britain system. It was totally polarised. Yeah. When I lived in East London, to, if I was walking, going to work, uh, I would go from street lamp to street lamp. The, the British National Front Party was there. It was right. brutal. It was really barbaric. You could be beaten up at any time. You wow. didn't trust the police. My father was beaten up. My brother was beaten up. And although I became late in the So you're just walking down the street? You, you just walking down the street. You lived in fear. And, and, and terror. It was so bad. And we're talking about Britain in the 1970s. Late 60s and into the early 70s. In the early 70s, yeah. Major changes came later, which was positive. And I came to realize that it was too bad. I, I'd collected a mass of material on the mission agencies, the major Christian institutions, many of them evangelicals. And one day I went to the garden I lit a bonfire and burnt everything. Right. And I said, look, my pathway would be different. So with my wife, we started ministry and evangelism to the ethnic communities. Okay, so sharing the good news of Jesus with, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And very quickly, I had teams from Oxford, Cambridge, and other uh, uh, groups. So I led major citywide campaigns, Operation Mobilization and others. And, and the work grew from there. I had no salary. I just trusted God, which I what I've done now from that period onwards. And I, I came to see that really it wasn't just good enough running these evangelistic campaigns. What do you do with your converts? 
Where okay, so people who come to faith in Christ who began who begin to yeah to trust so in Jesus. So I decided so. the best thing to do was to become a church planter. Yes. So with my wife in 1975, we moved into East London, Plasto, yes. which was the second most violent area after Toxteth in Liverpool. Ooh. We took our children, yes. and, and we began there with nothing. We had a redundant vicarage and a redundant church. And we recruited a small team from Cambridge uh, University of Kikyu, and so we started the ministry. Mm. It was tough, it was hard, but the Lord blessed it. Our Tamil church, and I was just very recently in East London, there are now seven Tamil churches, oh, wow. grew out of that one, 1,500 members. My and what was yeah. remarkable, there were over 64 Tamil churches in Britain, Amazing. And we started the very foundations, and yes. I was the pastor of that. Uh, we had a multi-ethnic church, and for 25 years I was an inner-city pastor. Right. So it was a violent area. Our doors were often attacked. I was beaten up one Sunday evening in the church in the middle of the service by the National Front. Yeah. But I learned that incarnational ministry has to be with the people Caring just for them, loving them. What is inca incarnational ministry? Just Being present. That. Being present. You yeah. cannot minister from out there. Yes. You do not minister to people, but with, with people, people in their suffering, in their need. In the same way that Jesus ministers exactly. to us and he identifies with and, us. And for me, yeah. Jesus is the model of ministry. So we had no salary, we had no possession, we could say, we could live like Jesus. And so people didn't see, you are Christians, you're wealthy, you've got power. Mm. We had nothing. But interesting in that period, I wrote my first book. Yeah, you've written 33 books, haven't you? Yes. Yeah, I edited a work on yeah. uh, called All One in Christ. Yes. To show that at the heart of our faith is, is Jesus. Mm. And then I was brought in by the police as an advisor, K Division. So they approached you and they said they, they, they approached they, me yeah. and I became an advisor to Kayla Division. So what's that, Kate? What's that? What's that? It does in East London, right. the most violent area. Okay. Then I was brought in as a lecturer uh, near a place near uh, Chelmsford uh, to prison officers, probation workers, and other and police. And then I, I became an advisor on transcultural psychiatry. So, in a strange way. Doing the pastoral work, I suddenly entered the police and others as an advisor. Yes. And although I saw the worst of humanity, for example, prison officers will boast when they got a rasta, a rastafarian, and they person. had him in prison. A rastafarian person. They would put fleas in his head to torment and torture the person, and this was a joke. The police also were brutal. But I decided that I would be there to try to affect change and to help them to understand culture and race and behavior and work for, 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 for good. But I also became international with the World Evangelical Alliance and the Lausanne Movement. So I was part of a large growing church, a mission community across Britain, advisor to the police, and then an international uh, work with the various agencies to help develop mission, cross-cultural, Islam, etc. So everything sort of grew yes. uh, out of that. Amazing. And then 
what's fascinating to, to, well we, we, let, let's, let's, let's move on where did the interest then particularly around Islam as well because you were very much well before 9-11 you could see that the storms were brewing and about how our world was going to be changed by Islamic fundamentalism well it started really in 1976 I was asked by the British Evangelical Alliance to convene at an international conference on mission to Muslims which had not happened since after the Second World War. That was followed by another conference in 1978. When we got to the 1980s, the Lausanne Movement and WEA asked... Yes, just explain to us, what's the Lausanne Movement? That is an international evangelical agency. Yes. So the Bible-believing Christians yeah, uh, here. That yeah. came into being in 1974 with John Stott and others. The World Evangelical Alliance was not evangelicals on the ground, it was organizational-based. I was asked to take the lead to be the coordinator of both, to help churches and missions develop ministry to Muslims. Right, yes. So in 1989, we convened a conference in Cyprus on the church in the Muslim world. We had the key leaders from Asia and Africa and the Middle East. Now, at that point, all the thinking on persecuted church ministries was to the communist world. Yes. And all the great leaders, Brother Andrew and others, yes. were involved. That's but right. no one was interested in Islam no. and the persecuted church, which had existed for more than 1,400 because years. Because the assumption is that the, that, the, that the Middle East is all Muslim, and that's it. Exactly. That's all the And there was assumption. no interest at all. Yeah. It was only in communism. And still in mainstream media, that there is that sort of it very polarization that, that India is just full of Hindus or... Pakistan exactly. Muslims and that's it. Exactly. But it's much more nuanced than it, that. It was much, much, much more. And the church had existed. So in 89, we convened the conference. The, 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 the suffering was so great. Everyone agreed we had to do something. So we decided to create two agencies. First, patterned after Keston College, was a research body called Isaac. And it still is, I believe, the foremost research body on persecution of Christians in the Muslim world. Mm. And then secondly, a relief agency to help persecuted Christians. We got the first going, and I thought, why start another aid agency? So I went found the Christian relief agencies and mission agencies mm. and asked, will you give 1% of your income to help these churches? And they said no. Okay. So we decided out of frustration than to create a charity organization. purely to support Christians. Not everyone else. Because no one else was talking about them, no one was recognizing. And no one was interested. No. They simply was off the map and off the wall. Yeah. And it continues to be so, I think, in mainstream yeah. media, media even today, although there are rumblings. There are rumblings. But yeah. you see, the problem we had to face was an almost an impossible task. The government opposed us because here we were now criticizing Saudi Arabia. Yes, and obviously we have a lot of money coming from Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Huge amounts. The yeah. media didn't buy that such a thing exists. Yes, the big denominations, particularly the Church of England and others, had a relationship with these uh, uh, other religions, particularly in the UK and internationally. And they didn't want to upset those. They didn't want to upset. And the mission agencies were opposed. Because they said the more you talked about the suffering of Christians, our missionaries could get attacked or thrown out. So we had every man and his brother against us. Mm. And worse, when I began to write my books, 
on the nature of Islam, of political Islam. And let me define what I mean. Yeah, I think, because you've got, you very helpfully explained three ways that we should look at Muslims um, and yes. uh, as Christians. And I think that's very, just spell it out for us, I think that's very helpful. I believe that Muslims and all human beings are created in the image of God. And as such, if you hurt or ill-treat any person of them, whatever their background, religion, orientation, you're hurting the God who created them. So we must embrace and we must care and watch over and love. Yes. But secondly... So love for all Muslims as creating the image of God? It's based on that, the fact they're created in the divine image. But they're members of a religion... And in a liberal democratic society, all religions must be free to exist. Yes. Uh, however... Yeah. So we must have freedom of expression of faith for or of no faith, yeah, because yeah. we've got to live together. We and it's interesting, to. that goes back, I think, to your own childhood in terms of... Pluralism. Yeah, in terms of accepting together. one another as human so beings. Exactly. Because we, we've got to, we, you know, we, we've got to go to school, we've got to drink water, yeah. we've got to use the taps, yes. we've got to use the electricity, exactly. we've got to... Yeah. yeah, so we've got to live together. So Muslims must yeah. be free to have their religions in the UK. Uh, but there must be open but to criticism. But it's third point, yes. Let me explain the criticism. Yeah. Just as uh, Christianity is criticized and uh, is oh, theology, yeah. so Islam as a religion must be free to undergo criticism and not simply lock out all criticism yes. as Islamophobia. Yes, but and that's what happens in our society, is that you make a criticism... And then you're and attacked. It, and we, a previous podcast, if you listen, we had an interview with Baroness Cox, who's done a lot of work uh, here in the UK about Sharia law mm. and challenging uh, Sharia courts that allow a woman to yes. be divorced just by her husband saying three times I divorce you. And yet her challenging that has been accused of being Islamophobic and yet she's rightly yes. challenged that saying, hold on, I'm speaking on behalf of Muslim women so how yes. can you accuse me of being Islamophobic? Exactly. Yeah. Now the third is yeah. when religion becomes political. Yes. And so political Islam must be rejected because it challenges the very foundations of a liberal democratic society. Yes. And so that's why we get confused. And so we have to acknowledge and accept that there are Muslims who are heavily funded yeah. and strongly determined, who in the name of Islam yeah. want to dominate the nation or the world. And, the and they're using Islam as that. And exactly. the problem is that by calling it any criticism, criticism Islamophobia, yeah. we are losing sight of that, and losing exactly. that perspective. So now here I am writing about political Islam, about what is there, and we are now criticized. Right. What, what about are we talking? What about we, we're now 1989. 80. We launch Isaac. We start writing, producing yeah. material, and suddenly everyone is against us. What we do, and I learned this from Michael Bordeaux, who founded Keston College, do the hard work and make sure it is accurate, scrupulously yes. accurate. So do your preparation until the opportunity arises. To, to, and what we to, then to, discovered, yeah. Yeah. suddenly I knew where Ben Laden's safe house was. In okay, Osama bin Laden, yeah. yes. I knew where their meetings were in the UK. We now had a database which we were collecting uh, information across the Muslim world. And we were ahead of the security services. Wow. So yeah. in 91, 92... I was asked by a British special branch to be an advisor. So all the information we were collating on radicalization and terrorism uh, went to them and an interpretation. 
That lasted until 1999, when the British government decided that they were no longer terrorists, and right. that unit was closed down. Yes, and I think historically, the, the, the sort of British policy has been about, well, let everybody carry on yes. doing what they're doing, yeah. in, and, and, and we're not going to be very interested about what yes, they're doing. Yes, and two yeah. British policies said, well, if these nasty people did their work outside of Britain, it didn't matter to us. Only when they came into Britain, then we're going to take a look at them. And that was, I think, a, a wrong policy. So we're in a situation now, 9-11. Yes, and, 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 and the world out. changes. Yeah, January, exactly. January, September 11th, 2001. Now pulled yeah. out now to be a red cell hunter. What does um, that mean, a red cell hunter? Using intellectual material to track down potential terrorist organizations. Right. Because we had amassed a massive database, yeah. theological, military... Okay, people who are writing very subversive... Yes. Doctrine and, 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 and trying to influence others. Yeah. Exactly, in their structure. So Barnabas Fund is now growing rapidly. Okay. I've got the research side growing rapidly, yes. writing all these books. The security services come along, and I felt it was my duty as a British citizen to help. It was a little contribution I could make as a person from foreign origins to help the safety of the nation. Wow. That's fascinating. Let's just come back to to the person, Patrick. Okay, uh, and let's just think a little bit about um, about who you are, because we're, we're going on. A, we're going to, do, going to do a third podcast where we're going to look much more about the persecution of Christians around the world and what Barnabas Fund does. But let's just look, get to know you a little bit better. Um, you, you carry a lot on your shoulders. How do you manage to deal with? Because one of the big things we're interested in on, on the Making Sense of Life podcast is managing stress, growing in resilience, uh, avoiding burnout. How do you keep yourself going? Well, I'm thankful that I have a wonderful wife. Tell us about Rosemary. Yeah. Rosemary's from New Zealand, and we've always worked together. Uh, we've suffered and gone through pains together. Yeah. Yes. And so if you have the strength of a wife, and a family. And secondly, I've had very close colleagues, and uh, they, it, it, you can share that, but I don't believe in personally burnout. I don't understand it. I don't understand okay. stress. Okay, you we have got podcasts on that. You, <laughs> you, you live for the day, yes. and I guess my way of approaching things, yes, I feel deeply. Yes. I, I look at suffering. I, I myself have gone through I think difficulties which makes you question whether life is worth living. Yes. But at the end of the day, you have to believe that there is a God. Yes. And that's how, somehow that God holds you up yes. and he carries you, even when you do not understand and when everything has collapsed around you, yes. that there is still the divine. Yes. And it is that experience of the divine with Christ that actually enables you to face anything in yes. the world. And you certainly experienced that in your life. I mean, going back and you know, listening to the last podcast that we had in terms of where God has brought you, I mean, in a sense, from British Guyana to the UK, the, 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 sort of the racism you suffered, then being a vagrant, and then being ignored and ostracized, and gradually, yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's quite incredible if we think about it. It's, it's a very hard place, the UK, particularly if you're a foreigner. Right. And if I had somebody who had to write about myself, I would say always an immigrant. I realized I'll never be accepted. I'm never accepted it's by the church or by the nation. You know, in 
when we came to the first Gulf, second Gulf War, I was contacted by the British military, and here's an irony. I arrived in Germany to advise Seventh Armour that would lead the British uh, forces into Iraq, the attack on Iraq. And I'm confronted by the Black Watch. I remember them because of their feathers in their cap. Right. So I said, you used to arrest my father. And take so him what is the Black Watch? It's, it's a Brit it's Scottish regiment. Right, OK. And uh, so we joked and they... So you used to arrest my father? Yes, they used to take him to prison and I used to follow them as a boy. Oh, so sorry, this is, so this is in... There was history in Guyana. In Guyana. Now I'm having to advise them in 2000, you know, the, yes, the, the second the Gulf, Gulf, Gulf War. Yeah. I've flown to Germany. And so they do penance by feeding, giving me lunch whenever I'm with them. <laughs> and so here I am now as, now as an advisor to a British unit. Yeah. And out of that, I became a British military advisor I served in Iraq, yeah. in, in Basra, and then was sent to Kabul. Wow. And then I did uh, Kandahar, both Iraq Af and uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, as a advisor to a two-star headquarters, and I'm known as the cultural advisor. Yes. I then entered into the Defense Academy as a lecture advisor, senior visiting fellow, then NATO became adjunct professor of the George C. Marshall School for European Security. Goodness. And then I moderated the UK Counterterrorism Conference. So that brought me now with a whole new life for 15 years. Yes. Becoming involved in current warfare, uh, intelligence, military yeah. analyst and cultural advisor, and a deployable academic. Because yes. I did my PhD Yes. at the School of Oriental and African Studies in Islam and political Islam oh. in the 1990s. Okay. So, so I suddenly had the intellectual... So you got the credibility then to, yeah, to, 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 advise, to, to advise on that. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Well, Patrick, thank you for really just opening up so much about your, your life to us. We're going to do one more podcast with you as well on the work of Barnabas Fund. But thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. And it's been a great encouragement to hear how through it all, through the through the struggles, it's it's Christ who's the one who, who sustains and holds you. And it's ultimately he's the one who's suffered far more than we ever can exactly. or have. Yeah. And it's to him that we look, yeah. knowing that through his resurrection power, um, we can have new life as well. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.